Let's pray together. We love to sing to you, our great king, our cornerstone, our rock, our savior, our friend. We love to sing to you. So these have been good minutes together and our hearts are lifted. So now come, King Jesus, come. Make me the mouthpiece of your heart towards this people. Call out of darkness those who are still blind. Call into life the dead and build up those who are falling and weak and grant that your church would be empowered and that the ripple effect of this moment in this conference would be beyond all of our imagination and that things would happen in people's minds and hearts concerning you and your word and their ministry in this world that they didn't even dream were going to happen here at this conference. So exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, come and work. I look away from myself now and ask for you to carry me. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the next unit. After, after trips and after Felipe is chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. That's mine. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. We'll read it together. I'll read it for you. You follow along. We're going to take a good while opening these glories. So we do not lose heart. You've heard a lot about that, and there's more to say. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature, this body of ours, our outer nature Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul claims here to have an experience that virtually everyone in the world wants to have. That's an amazing claim. He claims to have found a secret for an experience that everybody in the world wants to have. And I'm referring now to verse 16. So we do not lose heart. No, we don't. We don't lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. So We don't lose heart. What we do do is get renewed every day. I have found that secret. There's a negative here. We don't lose heart, and there's a positive here. We get renewed day by day. Now, in one sense, virtually everybody in the world, 
including everybody in this room, wants that experience. So let's do a little test here to see if that's so. We'll do a negative test and a positive test. Did any of you come tonight hoping, longing, aching that somebody would sing something, Piper would preach something that would make you totally lose heart? Raise your hand. You came longing to lose heart. Oh, please, sing something or say something that would just knock the breath out of my hope. And takers, I can't see because it's dark to my eyes, but I'm assuming that's nobody out there. Nobody wants to be discouraged. Nobody wants to have the breath knocked out of their dreams. Nobody wants to have the motivation for a living stripped away from them. There's no place in the world you're going to find someone who's longing to lose heart. Nobody says, please help me be hopeless. Please help me lose my motivation. Please help me be discouraged so that I can't go on. So I think Paul is telling the truth here. If he's telling the truth here, he has found something everybody wants. That's amazing. He says, I don't lose heart. Here's a second test on the positive side. If I could offer you a way that day by day, day by day, till your life is over, you could be renewed in your soul, hope, strength, joy, new, 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 day by day, would you say, I don't want that. I don't want anything to do with that. I do not want you to help me find a way to be renewed every day. Renewed in hope, renewed in strength, renewed in joy. Don't want to be renewed. I want to run out of gas every day and not be able to be renewed in the morning. I don't. Nobody, nobody's going to talk like that. So when I give a test to this claim, I conclude he's on to something universally desired. Everybody in this room wants to be renewed in hope and renewed in strength and renewed in joy and renewed in motivation instead of coming to the end of yourself and saying, that's it. Now, I know that there are suicides in the world, up 49% in Oregon in the last 10 years. Is that a contradiction to what I'm claiming for the Apostle Paul? That there really are people who, who don't want hope. I don't think so because I think the reason people come to the end of their 
rope and commit suicide is because they've tried to find a way of renewal. They've tried not to lose heart, and they can't find it. And they've tried so long and so hard to find some way to break out of the blackness and darkness of their mind that they can't, and they've given up, and there is no such thing, and I might as well end it. So they're just confirming the truth that everybody in the world wants not to lose heart. So Paul, if you're telling us the truth here, this is unbelievably relevant. If you, if you came here tonight and you're just tucked away in some dark corner feeling suicidal, I've been praying for you this afternoon. Because my guess is that you're here. And what I've been praying is that you would be set free by God's Spirit, through the Word, from that lie. The devil is a liar and a murderer. That's how they go together. And I've been praying that you would know the truth and the truth would set you free. Paul has found the secret here, and he's not a liar. And I hope the Lord gives you the grace to listen to his secret. That's really what this text is about. He, he says, I don't. We don't lose heart. Now, before we bore down into that secret of how Paul doesn't lose heart, I want to look at two more things in verse 16. Two more things in verse 16 which function, at least for me, and I think they probably would for most of us, to say God. Paul's got a right to talk to us about this. He's got a right to talk to you. Because you might say, um, no, who does he think he is? He's never walked in my shoes. He's never lived in my neighborhood. He's never gone through what I've gone through. So who does he think he is to tell me what the secret is for my life not to lose heart, not to be suicidal or to get renewed every morning? Who does he think he is? And he says a couple of more things here that I think win him the right to be heard. And I'm not even thinking first about the fact that Paul is an inspired spokesman of the king of the universe, which he is. The apostle Paul is an authorized, sent spokesman for the risen Jesus who reigns over Chicago and the United States and is inspired by God and says things like this, we impart wisdom in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit of God. So he he claims to be a God-inspired, authoritative spokesman for the risen Christ. I'm not even thinking about that when I say he's got a right to talk to you about how you don't have to lose hope in your situation. You don't have to lose heart. You can be renewed every day for your situation. I'm not even thinking about that mainly, though I could. I'm, I'm talking about the fact that he is speaking out of 
suffering. The text here is about wasting away. We do not lose heart, though our outer man is wasting away. And that's Paul's life. And so he probably has suffered as much as you have and more, and therefore he has a right. So don't think, oh, John Piper, you don't have any right. That's right, I don't. I don't, I don't claim to stand here speaking out of my experience and that I have a right to talk to you about anything. If I don't echo what Paul says under the authority of God's Word and under his experience as a suffering apostle, then you shouldn't pay any attention to me. The secret he's revealing here is a secret for the suffering and the dying. The suffering and the dying don't have to lose heart. There is a secret for the prospering, right? Philippians chapter 4, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There is a secret for not losing heart when you're rich. That may be a harder secret to learn than when you're poor. When you're well, harder than when you're sick. The poor, the sick, the suffering don't have many places to turn and therefore often turn to God. The rich have lots of places to turn and therefore seldom turn to God, which is why more rich people commit suicide than poor people. More people jump off the Coronado Bridge in San Diego than off the Brooklyn Bridge. They do. So I'm not not saying there shouldn't be a sermon on the secret of not losing heart for rich people. It's just not what this text is about. We don't lose heart, though our outer man is wasting away. That's what this text is about. And that's why he has a right to talk to you, because that's his life. What does it mean, wasting away? That's the ESV. I'm reading out of the ESV. I'm not sure what your version might say. We, we're talking, he says, about a secret to not losing heart in the midst of wasting away. So if you track down that word, it's used about five times in the New Testament, this word for wasting away. Let me give you just three of them to give you a flavor of what kind of word he's chosen here. Luke 12, 33, provide yourselves with a treasure in heaven where no moth destroys. That's the word, same word. So you have a nice winter coat. March comes, hang it in the closet, don't need it. Pull it out in November, it's ruined. Moths got it, holes all over the place, yuck. Just throw it in the trash, quick as you can. That's this word. So moth, eaten, destroyed, ruined, useless, no good for anything. When that's happening to you, you don't have to lose heart. Second, Revelation 8, 9, a third of the 
living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. There's the word, destroyed. A third of the ships were destroyed. Now, this is not moth-eaten ships. This is ships, and a few verses before it says, God's going to throw a rock in the ocean, and a third of the ships are going to capsize. It's a picture of huge destruction coming by God's natural forces, and your ship is going to capsize and wind up at the bottom of the ocean. That's this word. When that's happening to your life, you don't have to lose heart. That's what this text is about. He's got a secret here, he says, of not losing heart when his ship is turning over. Or Revelation eleven eighteen, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Same word. So the most common translation is destroy. See, so you've translated that way is. We do not lose heart, though our outer person, our body, is being destroyed. And so the secret I have for you, Paul says, about how not to lose heart is one that I have a right to talk to you about because I live that every day. He lives that every day. And that's what this morning's text was very much about So we do not lose heart, though our outer self, our body, our brain, that's part of your body, lungs, liver, hearing, muscles, honest bones. (laughs) At 67, I sometimes imagine what I did at 17. Like I would stand on my roof and jump off. And I had it down. I mean, people do high jumps over seven what? What's the record? Seven something. That's a long way to fall. And I used to just have it down to a roll. I said, if I did that now, everything would snap. (laughs) I'm just very conscious of what aging means. I'm being destroyed. So are you. You're just a little bit behind me. <laughs> you are. But if you, if you use the context here or the New Testament context for what it means for Paul to be destroyed, for you to be destroyed, and me, it's pretty profound. There are two sources from which we get destroyed. The natural fallenness of the world and the fallenness of people in the world. Here's the text for natural fallenness. This is Romans 8.20. The creation was subjected to futility, creation, all of it, in hope that the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption, so futility, corruption. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together until now, through the pains of childbirth, until now, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit grown inwardly, eagerly waiting our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So God has saved you, Christian, in stages. This is so important. You are forgiven and you are justified 
as fully as you will ever be. Now. And guess what? You're going to die. Get cancer, get leukemia. Because God has not chosen to deliver you from that dimension of the curse yet. We groan, waiting, waiting, waiting the redemption of our bodies. You get saved in stages. And Paul is saying, I'm under this curse. And we're going to find out from verse 17, for Paul, its effect will kill him, but it won't damn him. It's going to have exactly the opposite effect. So that's the first force in the world that is wasting him or destroying him. Namely, nature is, cancer is, tornadoes are, tsunamis are, floods, disease, wreaking havoc in the world, Christian and non-Christian. That's the first force. And the second force is fallen Men, and that could either be human finite failures to not drive safely, lose control of their car, cross the lane, head on, you're dead, and your kids. That happens to Christians. Or they, if you don't get crippled by a car, they, they may just shoot you. Or they may strap a, a bomb around them. Or maybe they will carry it in a backpack in Boston and blow your eyes out. Human fallenness is part of what it means to be destroyed. So fallen men, fallen nature conspire to destroy Christians in this life, bring them to a, a miserable, painful and, and Paul says, that's what I'm talking about. Though our outer nature is being destroyed by fallen nature and fallen people, we don't lose heart. Instead, every single day, renewal, renewal, renewal. That's what he says. He's got a secret for that, that everybody in the world wants to have the secret of not losing heart and being renewed every day. Now, there's one more thing I want you to see in verse 16 before we start digging into what the secret is. Notice the implications of this word renewed. We are being renewed every day. If you are being renewed every day, what does that imply? It implies hope fades. Encouragement wanes. Your bucket leaks. I find that unbelievably encouraging. That the Apostle Paul says, I've got a secret. And it isn't a secret of how never to need renewal. You can have an experience, don't need renewal anymore. 
That's not the message. In fact, the message is unbelievably realistic. Day by day, renewed, which means every day you leak, every day you fade, every day you get depleted. That's what it says. You wouldn't need to be renewed day by day if you could run your car on yesterday's gas. If your metabolism could function on yesterday's meal, if the pain in your head could be relieved on yesterday's dosage, you can't run today's life on yesterday's newness. This is just huge. Those of you who've been Christians a while just know this. You're thinking, oh, yeah, I know. If you're a new believer, this is one of the most important things you can learn in your life. Because it's so easy to think on the highs that come with Jesus moving into your life is that I've found it, I've risen, I'm, I'm there, I'm flying on eagle's wings. You won't be. So... So you got to find ways to put the air onto your wings every day. And he says, I, I know how to do that. That's the secret I'm after here. I don't want to lose heart. Not a day. I want the secret of being renewed every day. Not a week, not a month. I want every day. I want to figure this out so that I can walk like this. I know life is going to be a battle. That's the implication of renew. So, Paul, I really, really want what you say you have. And you say it takes renewing. This is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 6, 34, each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't be anxious about tomorrow because tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient unto the day is its own trouble. Have you ever thought about that phrase? Its own trouble. Like, like what is today? Friday? Okay. There's Friday trouble. Guess what? There's Saturday trouble. That's what Jesus said. That's not like me being a prophet. Each day has its trouble. It's appointed. There's going to be Sunday trouble. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. Maybe the front wheel will fall off. I don't know. Jesus said so. But you know what else? Lamentations 3 said, sufficient for the day, the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Those two texts of, I don't know how many years I've been using them for my soul a lot. Every day has its own trouble. Every day has its own mercies. This is Lamentations 3.21, and this is Matthew 6.34. God has matched them. That's part of the secret. Tomorrow will have its Saturday troubles, and tomorrow will have its Saturday mercies. And those Saturday mercies must be tapped into by the secret here of renewing. Because I had some mercies this morning. And they're not designed for tomorrow. They were designed for today. 
right now. I'm feeling them now. Tomorrow, there's going to be new, new mercies. And the secret that he's got here is how do you get under those? How do you get in those? How do you experience those? And I, I paused right here in my preparation. I asked myself the question, since this, is a, this conference is under the banner, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. And I asked God, I said to him, God, is there something in this text that would just give me a clue? Why did you set it up this way? that I have to be renewed every day. I mean, you, you could have just bumped me up to maximum sanctification and kept me there. <laughs> you know how I know he could? Because he's going to do it when Jesus comes back. I'll never sin again after Jesus comes back. So why am I sinning now? I mean, Lord, just do that. <laughs> you, you're going to do it then? Just do it now. And he says, not the plan. And, and to just go back and borrow the text from this morning, we have this treasure in jars of clay for a reason. Clay that needs to be renewed every day. Clay that can't stand on its own longer than 24 hours or on yesterday's grace for 24 hours so that the surpassing power will belong to God. And you can get in God's face about this and say, I don't like the plan. I don't like the plan that you leave me unsanctified and battling every way, every day with depletion, having to be renewed on grace every day. I don't like the plan. I'd just like to be done with the battle. And he'd say, well, that's the plan. And the reason it's the plan, I've given you some clues. I'm going to get some glory in your life. If you didn't do it this way, you know what? You'd get uppity about it. You'd think you had it made. You'd think it would start coming from you. The fact that you run out of gas every day puts you in the station. That's me. So God, God has his reasons for why he saves us in stages sanctifies us slowly, makes us fill up every day at his pump, lest we forget where the gas comes from. That's what verse 7 said, I think. Okay, now the stage is set. Um, oh, I, I didn't finish my thought there. I said, <laughs> I said, this conference has got the banner over it, to God alone be the glory. So why would he leave us in this kind of weak clay pot condition, and he tells you in verse 7, so that it might be plain that he is all-sufficient. The giver gets the glory. You've got to come to me every day to remind yourself you can't live without me. And so I'm going to get the glory here. That's, that's the connection between the theme. We'll come back to the, to the glory of God because it's here in verse 17. But now the stage is set for digging into the secret. All that in verse 16 to say, um, I've got an important secret to talk to you about. Now, there are clues about what the secret is, about how not to lose heart and how to be renewed every day. Two kinds of clues in the text. One kind is a, a link with something outside this text, way over in Colossians, 
And the other kind is from right here in the verses. And I want to take them one at a time. And, and it was a surprise to me. I was working on this text fresh for myself to get ready for this. It was a surprise to me that when I traced out the first clue, it totally confirmed the first, second clue. I'll try to show them one at a time. So the first clue is tracking down the word renewed elsewhere. And I discovered, oh, he only uses this word one other place. The verb being renewed is only used one other place in the Apostle Paul, Colossians 3.10. And in Colossians 3.10, he says this, you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So you got some similarities of language, same word, and the clue is the phrase in knowledge. My inner person, my new, regenerate, believing, God-dependent, Christ-exalting person is being renewed. It hasn't arrived yet. It needs to be renewed over and over every day. How's it happening? In knowledge. Hmm. So I wrote this sentence. God has designed the glory of the human being such that the condition of our heart, we do not lose heart, is profoundly influenced by the content of our head or by what we focus consciously on. Now, I don't want to say it too careless. I, I want to be careful in how I don't want to overstate this. I don't want to say, if you get enough knowledge of God and His ways and His promises and whatever else is in the Bible, enough knowledge will guarantee a heart that doesn't fail. That's just absolutely not true. And Paul makes it very plain that without the transforming work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of knowledge, you will become proud with your knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Knowledge, this knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So I don't want to overstate it. Don't hear me saying, accumulate enough knowledge and you will be renewed every day. However, even though the Bible knows many hypocrites, like the Pharisees, whose heads were stocked filled with Bible knowledge and were sons of hell. Even though the Bible knows such people and you know such people, I know nobody who is being renewed day by day and not losing heart for God without the knowledge of the Word of God daily going into their head. So, I'm saying it's not Sufficient by itself to keep you from losing heart, but without it, you can't sustain the renewal. Colossians 3.10 is a clue that one of the aspects of the secret of not losing heart is 
In knowledge, we are renewed. In knowledge, we are renewed. So this is just so profound because how many, many people complain that I got it here and I don't have it here. The 12 inches between my head and my heart are the longest 12 inches in the world. And then they draw the conclusion, well, knowing is not part of the key. Theology is not. Truth is not. Truth doesn't set me free. That's a big mistake. Because this says renewed in knowledge. That's clue number one. There's, there's something going on here about how the mind appropriates truth or something, knowledge, that goes to the heart and makes the heart new day by day. And I want to I I know more about that. So here comes the second clue about what this secret is. Verse 16 begins with the word so or therefore, same word. And verse 17 begins with the word for or because. So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. What's another word for so? Therefore. What's another word for for? Because. You use them every day. You know how they work. I'm hungry. So, I'm going to go have lunch. I'm hungry. Therefore, I'm going to have lunch. So, my hunger is the reason, the ground of why I'm going to have lunch. And so, I connect it with therefore when the reason comes before the action. But if you took the action and put it in front of the ground or the cause or the reason, you don't use the word therefore anymore. You use the word because. I'm going to have lunch because I'm hungry. So, when the reason for your action comes first, you follow that reason with therefore. I'm hungry, therefore I'm going to go have lunch. When it comes after, you begin it with because. I'm going to eat because I'm hungry. That's what we got here. And you might be sitting there thinking, <laughs> yeah, that is weird. I did not come to Chicago for a grammar lesson. I, I didn't come to Chicago to be taught uh, elementary logic. So um, get on with meat. This tastes like gristle. I didn't like grammar. You know what my response to that is? It's, it's this. Why do you think they invited me to come here? I, I am not cool. I don't talk cool. I don't dress cool. And moreover, I don't care at all about being cool. I'm not tempted to, to, to wear the right... I, I kind of... I just, 
So I'm kind of looking around thinking, what am I doing here? And, and I think I know. I don't even know if the people who asked me to come know why they asked me to come. But I think I know why they asked me to come. Here's why I think they asked me to come. I think they asked me to come because for about 40 years, I've been um, poking around in the becauses and the therefores of the Bible and telling everybody I can the glories that I see. Underneath the therefores and underneath the becauses. That's all I do. That's my life. So if you get uppity with me about your grammar lesson, I say, you don't want it, you don't have to take it. It's just my life. It's the way I see the world. It's the way I see God. It's a window. I'm in a dark room, and the becauses and the therefores of the Bible are the light of my life. They are the secret of renewal every day. That's what I want to show you. I think what the churches need, what discipling needs, is for preaching and teaching that deals with the words of the text and tells people why they're there. That's what I think the world needs. In fact, this is, the legacy movement is not mainly about entertainment. It's not even mainly about rescuing the perishing. It's about rescuing them all the way into discipleship, all the way into full-blown, mature, strong, independent churchmen and churchwomen who can lead for Jesus you know how I define those people? You haven't gotten people there yet until they can detect the becauses and the therefores of the paragraphs of the Bible and dig under them and find the treasures for their life so they don't have to be dependent on you to show it to them. You haven't finished the job of discipling until a person can open his Bible, spot that word so at the beginning of verse 16 and know, okay, it must be in verses 7 through 15 where this secret is found. I'm going to go there. I'm going to find it. Then I'm going to teach some kids what I saw. That's all I've been doing. And I, they notice the four or the because at the beginning of verse 17, and they say, oh, 17 must have some more of the secret in it, and I'm going to find it. I'm going to write it on a few pieces of paper. I'm going to tell somebody what I saw. That's what discipleship is. And if you don't think it's that grammatical, you don't get it. You don't get the fact that God inspired a book, not a video. He inspired a book. And the book is made up of sentences and paragraphs and words, and they're connected certain ways so that they have meaning from God Almighty into the brains of human beings. He, he could have done it another way, and he did it this way. We're stuck with having to teach our kids, read. 
I, I think the main reason you teach kids how to read is so that they can have the book for themselves. They don't have to be dependent on anybody else. So I don't know what you try to do when you sit down with a disciple, but if I were sitting with a guy for a year and wanted him to be independent of me and strong and durable and unshakable like a tree planted by streams of water that can't get knocked over when the winds come, I'd point to becauses and therefores. That's what I would do. And I'd make him see them. And I make him explain, why is it there? Show me. Show me what's behind that therefore. Show me what's behind that because. And if you can't show me, we're not done. Because you've got to get that for yourself because you're going to get blown over without it. You will lose heart. If you don't know why so is at the beginning of verse 16 and four is at the beginning of verse 17, you don't have the secret yet for how not to lose heart. They're not there for nothing. They're inspired. Words are inspired by God Almighty. And they carry a ton of meaning. So let me just give you, I I didn't get to preach on verses 7 to 15. You got that, and I'm not going to rehearse that. But I am going to point to two minutes worth of so. Therefore, so here we come, here we come to verse 16. So, therefore, because all that's gone before, we don't lose heart. Okay, show me, for example, verse 7, we have this treasure of Christ and the gospel in these weak bodies so that all the glory goes to God. Therefore, don't lose heart with your weakness. I'd make him unpack that. Show me how that works. Show me how that works. Or verse 8 and 9, we're afflicted, not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, don't lose heart. Show me. Explain that to me. Come on, talk back to me. How does that work in your head, in your soul? Why does therefore work there? Or verse 10, when we, ca- when we carry about in our body the dying of Jesus, the life of Jesus is manifested in you, therefore we don't lose heart. Get it? Get it? Or don't you get it? My dying is leading to your living. I'm not going to lose heart in my dying. That's a sermon. That's a discipleship lesson for an evening. That's good for the street. But if you don't work with the therefores, you don't get it. Or, verse 14, God will raise us from the dead with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Therefore, don't lose heart. So somebody's got a gun to your head. What do you need at that moment? You need this. God will raise you from the dead. So... What what happens to your heart if by the power of the Holy Spirit, that truth comes into your head, goes straight to your heart, and you're looking at this guy who's threatening you, and an amazing peace comes over your soul, and you don't lose heart. Make my day. (laughs) That's what I mean by looking for therefores. You see how relevant that is? 
Or verse 15, through our suffering, grace is extending to more and more people and increasing thanksgiving to the glory of God. Therefore, we don't lose heart. So now you got one, two, three, four, five reasons that account for the word therefore. Every one of them worth a day with a disciple, worth a sermon in a church, all built on therefore we don't lose heart. Wherefore, there, I just showed you, five mighty granite stones I'm standing on. And I'm not going to lose heart because those five things are true. God Almighty told me. I'll tell you, I was, I was talking to a woman the other day about this issue who struggles with assurance in her life. And I said, you know, God designed your heart to experience the sweetness of assurance by what you focus on with your head. And she looked at me like, where's that? Where's that? And I went here. So that sounded new to her. Where's that? I thought, oh, that's all the Bible is. It's a bunch of therefores and becauses. Talking about peace and joy and strength and power and for reasons that God has revealed in his word and acted out in history. So, Paul really does experience not losing heart because of truths, realities that he puts into his head day by day day by day, for renewal. Now, one more step. What about the four at the beginning of verse 17? Like, we're going to beat verse 16 to death if we don't move on. But my, there's a lot of life in there. He doesn't give up easy. I love to pound on verses till they're dead. <laughs> That's an odd way to say it, isn't it? <laughs> okay, verse 17. Verse 16, we don't lose heart. We're going to be renewed every day. For, because this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Verse 17 is the main argument. It's the main because, the main thing. This light momentary affliction is doing something. It's working for us an eternal weight of glory. And verse, all verse 18 does is say, look at it. You can't see it, but look at it. If you look at the fallenness of man coming at you with its guns or the, the fallenness of nature coming at you with its tsunamis, all you're going to do is lose heart. Stop looking at that. Look at the unseen. What, what unseen are you talking about? And how do you look at something that's unseen? That's a contradiction. You can't look at what you can't look at. It's, you said it's unseen. Stop telling me to see it. So, what do you mean, Paul? And I, I think it comes pretty clear what he means. That the basis of our not losing heart is something you can't see. And I'll, I'll get at what that is in just a minute. How do you look at the unseen so as to not lose heart? 
and so as to be renewed every day. And verse 17 is the main unseen thing you look at. We do not lose heart because this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Look at this, he says. Look at this. What do you, what do you see when you look at verse 17? You see him calling his affliction, which lasted a lifetime, momentary. Paul, you realize, I'm 67, people are supposed, you're supposed to retire, right? Paul suffered until the sword severed his head from his body. There was no year or two of fishing or golf. If, if Paul was going to have a retirement, it would be post-beheading. <laughs> so if he didn't have this, he had nothing. He said, if there's no resurrection from the dead, I'm an idiot. That's what he said, 1 Corinthians 15. He called his lifelong beatings and shipwreck and sleepless nights and agony for the church, he called it momentary. You see that there in verse 17? This light momentary. He called it light and he called it momentary. That's crazy. That's not what you see. You look at it, you say, That's 60 years, 50. I'm not sure how old he was when he died. Long time, 20, 30 years of relentless imprisonments and and persecution. And he calls it momentary, and he calls it light. And, and you see also, don't you, the contrast between momentary in verse 17 is eternal, and the contrast with light is weight. So let's read it again. Notice those parallels. His light momentary affliction is preparing for him an eternal, that corresponds to momentary, weight, that corresponds to light, of glory. So he could see, 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 really? You can't see. But he saw beyond the grave, according to promise, he saw glory. The glory of God that would be seen and the glory of God that would be given to him. And it made his lifelong suffering look momentary and it made the weight of the pain look light. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You are kidding me. you got to die for Jesus. You're going to call that light? Yes. Why? Because I look to the unseen. What? Glory. Glory beyond the grave that's going to so make up for this brief life. It will look momentary and it will look light. That's the unseen you got to look at. One more thing. And this, I, I end with this because it's just so, so relevant for so many suffering people and so precious to me. This word in verse 17, um, preparing, preparing. Um, not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, 
but all of it is totally meaningful. Now that is a very controversial statement because of how much insane suffering there is in the world. Every time something horrific happens, an interviewer will say, meaningless. And that is what it looks like. That's what it looks like. See, look at it, look at it. This is meaningless. These, these 23 kids in India, what did they do? They ate lunch. And they're dead. Or more Oklahoma. Or Boston. It's everywhere. Now we've got the internet. We've got no excuse for not crying every day. Weep with those who weep, right? If you don't have a theology that can cope with the internet horrors, you just better check out or get one. This text says our light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight. It doesn't say we'll be followed by an eternal weight of glory. That would be good enough. That would be good enough. That's not what it says. Kat ergodzomai. Forgive the Greek. I just love it. Got to like dump it out every now and then. You don't need to know that. The word means produce, prepare, cause to bring about. I'll venture this. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. That's a very controversial statement, and I believe it. So that if anybody says to me that a believer's suffering was meaningless, I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet probably because they're, they're uh, probably hurting really bad right now. And I'm going to wait and see when the right time is. But I'm going to come back eventually and say it wasn't meaningless. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't Meaningless, because verse 17 says, my light, momentary, lifelong, total affliction is doing something. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. This, this is the main unseen thing. Verse 18 is talking about, I think. What's the unseen you're supposed to look at? You're supposed to look at the the, the promise of God in verse 17 that says your pain is doing something for you. You can't see it. You can't feel it. Either you see it with the eyes of faith, believe it because the text says it, or you lose heart. And I'm going to close with John the Baptist as an illustration. I, love, I love and groan. My name's John. I, lo I love all the Johns in the world. That's a weird thing to say in the city. <clears throat> if I were good enough, I would. Um, but I love John the Baptist, and I love his story, and I weep over the way it ended. So let me just take three minutes and tell you the way it ended, and we'll stop. 
He's in prison, and you know why he's in prison. Jesus said, there is no man born of woman greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said that. (laughs) He's in prison. You know why he's in prison? Because he looked the king right in the face and said, you can't have her. She is Philip's wife. You're an adulterer. Well, that's a very dangerous thing to say to a king who has absolute authority over anybody doing anything he wants. So he puts him in jail. He's scared of him, so he hasn't killed him. But there he sits, and now it's Herod's birthday. And he gives a party for himself. Throws in a little bonus, a little sexual bonus for his guests. Has his stepdaughter dance. Really, really pleasing dance. Turns everybody on. They're all loving it. And when she's done, he knows she's pleased the guests. So to reward her, he says, I'll give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom. She goes to her mom, Herodias, who hates John the Baptist. He says, what should I ask for? And her mom says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Okay. She walks back in. Everybody's listening. What's she going to ask for? I want right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Silence in the room. King can't take it back. Okay. He whispers to his attendant. Get it. John's sitting there in the cell wondering how the kingdom is going to come. And the door opens and two guys are standing there, one of them with a sword. It's a moment of silence, doesn't know what's going on. And the one with the sword says, come over here and kneel down, and if if you struggle, we'll bind you. And John says, what what, what happened? What's going on? And the executioner says, king's daughter danced in the party, and... uh, She asked for your head, and we've come to get it. We're going to take your head. That's the last thing he has to think about in the next 20 seconds. What would you think? Everything in me says, God, what can be more meaningless than a party where a girl dances, asks for the greatest man on the planet's head, And within two verses of the Bible, he's dead. God. God. Meaningless. Absolutely meaningless way to die. Nothing glorious about it. It stinks to high heaven. I'll tell you, I hope God in his mercy put into John's head in those 20 seconds this light momentary affliction is working for you an eternal weight of glory. And so I I believe the main because for not losing heart in this text is that none of your suffering is meaningless. 
It'll feel that way. That's why verse 18 says, don't look at what's seen. I mean, you just stand there watching that happen. You just stand there watching that happen. You're going to kill him. He didn't do anything. She just danced. Don't do that. It's meaningless. This is totally crazy. This is an absurd novel. This doesn't happen. That's, that's the way you talk, right? What, you, what your eyes are telling you is meaningless. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you got cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes her out. Don't, don't say, it's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, do not lose heart, but take these truths, all the ones you've heard in every message, and day by day, focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and cared for. So God, come and do your mighty work through your word and through this people in all their ministries, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.